don't know who all was involved with the great slideshow and the gift. That's uh, uh, we're very, very blessed to have been a part of, of this place and your lives for all these years. And thank you for putting up with me all that time. It's a long time. <laughs> well, turn in your Bibles now, if you would, to John chapter 1. I know today's Father's Day and, and the mothers are saying they, uh, the guy fathers ought to get a Father's Day sermon too, but they're not. But we will talk about God as the Father in, in this section. This is where uh, the, the Father is first mentioned in the Gospel of John. So I want to leave you with, with that, men, because we get the privilege of being a reflection of who he is. And that's both an incredible thing and a great weight, a great responsibility to be that, that picture of what God is as a Father. But as we've been moving through this beginning part of the Gospel of John, uh, it's called the prologue, verses 1 through 18, the, the beginning. And it's not, it's not just uh, an introduction, but he's really laying down for us here, who is this Jesus we're going to talk about? So before we even get into the details of his life, John tells us, in the, in the greatest ways, who is Jesus? We've already seen an amazing amount. And he strings together these simple words. It, it doesn't have a, a, a large vocabulary of, of multi-syllable words that he uses. But just simple words, sometimes repeated for em emphasis, brought back again and again, to describe the incomprehensible. And that's, the, that's maybe the miracle of the Gospel of John, that he uses such simple language and then just buries us in truth that is so far beyond our ability to understand. Um, so if I realize we're, we're starting a little later, but indulge me, I'm going to read through the first 18 verses before I start. And, and just consider all of the truths we've already seen and where we're going to go in verses 14 through 18, Lord willing, this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come to being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a rank or higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And so in verse 14, having laid out so many truths about Jesus, especially the fact that He is God, John drops these simple words, the Word became flesh. Maybe we should just spend our time just on that phrase itself. It's loaded so full, especially when you stop and realize he's already defined, defined for us who or what the Word is. Uh, name gives to Jesus, but he's already told us of his eternal existence with the Father, He's already told us that he has always been with God, that is face to face with God, that he is God, that he is the creator, that he has life within himself. He doesn't derive his life from somewhere else like but he has life within himself. And he is the light of men. That's what he said about this one he calls the word. He's talking about God, God the Son. And all of the glory of those first 13 verses, who he is, he picks the word became. Now all of, his, all of the things he said about Jesus, the word up to this point, it's always was. Remember that the tense of the verb said, the one who already was existing in an ongoing way into the past all the way up. And now he says of him, he became? How could such a one become anything? The eternal one, the creator, all of those things that are true about him. But he says the word became, became what? Became flesh? How could this one who is eternal and, and infinite become flesh. And now understand when he says flesh, he's not talking about flesh in the way that Paul does. When Paul uses the term flesh, he's talking about our, our sinful tendency to want what we want, to follow after our sinful desires. That's not what he means. But in fact, here that means that the eternal word took on a physical body, was born as a human being, entered into human life just like we did. And so he came, not in the sense that anything was, was more about him, but he became human as well as God. He became one of those that he had created. <laughs> that ought to stretch our brains, right? Hopefully it's been stretching your brain for a lot of years for most of you. 
but simple words with impossible concepts to grasp. The Word became flesh, became like you and me in that way. Well, why? What did he do becoming flesh? Well, another set of fairly simple words. He dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled with us is the Greek word he uses there. So Jesus takes on flesh and blood, humanity, as his new tabernacle. So he tented, you could say. That's another word for what a tabernacle is. He tented in our midst. He lived in the camp with us, you could say. In fact, the whole idea of the tabernacle, that worship tent that they built, uh, you know, they came out of Egypt. While they were in the wilderness, God gave them instructions about this tent of worship that they were to build. And it was, he gave them all the directions, and, and I was, I was, gold and, and, and precious stones and all these different skins and, and everything that was all laid out in such a way as to put the focus on God. And in, in, the, in the book of Exodus, chapter 29, 44 through 46, God told them why. Exodus 29, 44 through 46. <clears throat> He says this, this is God speaking, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Here's that amazing truth. Not only did God want to redeem a people for himself out of Egypt, but he said, I'm going to live in the middle of you. And literally, the way they set up camp, the tabernacle was right in the middle. And then he arranged in an orderly way all of the 12 tribes around that tent. His presence was the heart of that whole nation that had been brought out. The same thing was said of the temple then later when Solomon built that in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through, through uh, 13. 1 Kings 6. The, the, the tabernacle was replaced by this amazing building. Certainly couldn't call it a, a tent and yet, in a sense, compared to the eternal God, this magnificent building really was not really much more than a tent, was it? But it expresses something important in verse 11. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, I will dwell among you, or among the sons of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. So here in, in Jerusalem, the city which was the center of, of 
religious and political and social life, God had Solomon build a building where he represented his presence among them so that he could dwell among them. So John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. It's it's going to a whole new level in a sense because Jesus' tabernacle was a human body. He came, dwelt in that body, and then lived among us, in the midst of us, with us. It's an amazing thing that God would represent his presence through the tabernacle, through the temple. But he went so far as actually to put on flesh like us as his tent so that he could interact face to face, life to life, experiencing all the things that we experience. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became Emmanuel, as it was predicted before his birth. God with us in our midst. But not just God with us, but God showing us who he is. Because verse one, or, or, I'm sorry, verse 14 goes on to say, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you remember what happened with the tabernacle, and you remember what happened with the temple, and the references are there for you in your outline, but after they were completed, the bright Shekinah glory came, the cloud of God came, and that brightness settled on the Holy of Holies. And God showed his visible glory, that he, he himself was dwelling there. So we would expect the same thing now that the Word has chosen to tabernacle with us, right? And John says, it's true. We did see his glory just like it was seen with the tabernacle and with the temple, and yet not quite the same. Saw that, that glory in many different ways. John, along with the other apostles and, and many other witnesses, saw miracles and signs demonstrating that power and might of God that you would expect. The things that Moses saw, Right? They saw Jesus healing people who were sick, casting out demons with power over that realm, curing people, even raising people from the dead. They saw him creating in the fact that he multiplied bread, right? He started out with a small amount of bread, and, and before he was done, there was, there was enough to feed thousands. He would... Recreate hands, right? He says, stretch out your hand. Oh, well, that, that's not just a matter of something being put right, but there's a creation of new things going on in that process, right? They saw him controlling nature as, as the sea was wild, and he said, peace, be still. And it was as calm as glass. They saw the glory of God in this man who walked with them. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. The glory 
like that glory that descended on the temple and on the tabernacle, shone out of him. And so, yes, they did see that light that represents the very glory of God as well. But more importantly, the glory they saw was being with him. The glory they saw was knowing God. They were able to interact face to face with him in this veil of human flesh. They were able to speak to him and know him. In fact, there was, there was, he was called, he's called here the, the unique one from alongside the Father. That's a way you, you, could, you could translate the end of that. We, we, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. The only begotten. I mean, throughout the Bible, understand that there were many people who were associated with greatness. Battles were won through these people. They were the central person in the, in the, the winning of that battle. Uh, changes were made in the nation and in the world, and that person was a, was a key part in that happening. Teachings were given. Things were built. And we have all these different accounts from Scripture, and we tend to focus in on, you know, uh, Joseph and David and, and all the different characters. But all those things correctly should be seen as God working through people. But the one he's speaking about here is one who is uniquely different from all the rest. There are many sons of God, in a sense, as verse 12 told us, right? Those who receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children or sons of God. Many sons of God. But Jesus is the unique, only born one of God. He is in a whole class by himself. He is the only one who is the Son of God. Much in the same way as in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 7. If you just flip over there quickly. This is your, the, your Hall of Faith chapter, you might say. <clears throat> I'm sorry, but I've got the wrong reference in there. But it is where, where, where Isaac is called, it should be 17, instead of 7. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Same word there. And used in the same way because Isaac wasn't the only son of Abraham. Ishmael had been born prior. He would then have other sons by, an, by another wife later. But Isaac was his only begotten, his unique son, who was the son of the promise. His unique son, through whom his future was, was riding on that one. In the same way, John says that Jesus is this unique kind of son of God. And he comes from alongside or next to the Father. And in all of that, he then points out the thing that brings us what the glory is really all about. 
It was about him being truly full of grace and truth. This is the quality of the glory seen in the word become flesh that especially sets that glory apart. He was filled up completely with grace and truth together. I don't know if you thought about those two being put together. It's one of the great, great struggles of the human mind, even if we don't realize it. For grace and truth to come together for sinful human beings, it kind of breaks something in our brains a lot of times. So often we think, oh, well, grace, well, that means you stop having a standard and you just let people get by. You just forget about the things that they've done wrong, and you forget about punishment. No, not at all. Grace and truth come together and work out perfectly because of Jesus. Grace, okay, freely giving what is not deserved to someone, right? That, that, that covenant concept, that was in the Old Testament, loving kindness, right? The giving to sinners, forgiveness. The giving to sinners, life eternal when they deserve death. And put that next to truth. Completely compatible with truth. Unwavering commitment, which is the unwavering commitment of the ways that things are based on the nature of God himself. So in Jesus, you had both this, this giving what's not deserved, yet total fidelity to the way God is and what he has done and the way he has designed everything to be. The two completely bound up in this one man, perfectly demonstrated. John says, we saw that in this one. Because we often find ourselves making these two things conflict in our minds. We can't truly hold those two together without being overwhelmed with the idea, no, if, if you're going to show grace, you have to lower the standard. Or you have to do away with the standard. But he says, in this one man, Jesus, who was the word, who was God, grace and truth were perfectly filled up in his being, in the things he said, in the things he did, and shining out of him, both coupled together. So who is this man that could be all of that? There's too much here to give it all the whole load to you this morning now. But as we continue on with this testimony about who Jesus is, Lord willing, next week, I want you to stop and consider that only one man came and said, I will fully pay the price of your sin and keep the standard perfectly. I will give you life when you deserve death because I will take death on myself. I will plan ahead for a future when you have destroyed your future. Take your life 
Commit it to me. Not that you're giving me anything, he said. He's really not asking for something that he's lacking. But he's saying, in order for you to really get what's good, you got to put your whole self in with me. It's an all-in. Trust yourself to me. And I've got you. Because I am full of both grace, which you need, and truth, the standard, and, 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 and the way by which you know what life is really truly all about. Remember, he's also the light. Those all both come together in such a way that there's a glory there that's greater than the glory that's shown above the tabernacle. Or the glory that's shown in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Take some time, I encourage you this week, to, to contemplate that. Because in Jesus is something you won't find anywhere else. And I know most all of you have entrusted yourself to Jesus. Revel in that fact. Live according to that truth. It changes your priorities. It helps get them back on track when they wander. That in him, I don't have to, to, to fudge on the truth. I don't have to change the way things look in my brain. I can move ahead with him because he's already given me everything that I will need to move forward in that. All right, with those thoughts, next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up in the next verse. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a day to honor and glorify you. And, and though we didn't really get to the part about you being the Father, uh, you and the Son are completely one in, in who you are and what you are like. And, and I pray, Lord, that as we consider fathers today, we would thank you. Thank you for being our Father. I pray that you would be honored today above all and glorified. That you would be seen as the one who gives life to all and, and cares for each one of us in a way that none of us as, as human fathers could ever begin to, to think we could do. But you are the one who does it perfectly, and, and then empowers us to do it in a way that, that helps others to think of you. I pray that you would help us, each as fathers who are here today and, and who are part of, of this body but aren't, can't be here today, Lord, that we would more and more be that reflection, that image of who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name.